Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they are practicing space biology science communication through dance moves on TikTok and that they may or may not know what mashed potatoes are. Or that they mostly enjoy the fall holidays because there is an inordinate number of pumpkins and squashes everywhere. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, happy Thanksgiving. I hope you are able to spend some time with family and friends and wish you the easiest of travels. Also, if there's friends and family need to listen to something during their travels, uh, I think you know what to do. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Tell them about the podcast is what I'm trying to say. Today's guest is out of this world. She does fascinating research to see how life may have started, educates people about her work through entertaining videos on TikTok sometimes, with bonus dances moves, and she still finds the time to be a lovely person. Let's get to it with astrobiologist and psychomer Lena Vincent. Thanks for joining me on the Deeper Than Data podcast. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Excited to have you here um, and get to some alien talk and what is life talk. Uh, I don't get to think about that very often, so very, very happy to do so. To start out, could you give us your full name and the pronouns you like to use? My name is Lena Vincent, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Great. Thank you. And if people are going to bump into you on the street, what might you look like today? Well, I am about five foot seven, olive skin with dark brown hair and a low ponytail currently. And I'm wearing, what am I wearing? I'm wearing a black turtleneck with a dress on top, which is a weird combination, but <laughs> it's getting chilly. So it's not dress weather anymore. <laughs> and yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, I busted up my winter coat for the first time last night. Um, I, I felt very defeated, but it's necessary. I kind of like it. I'm, I kind of like this this transitional cold that we're getting, so I'm enjoying it. <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay, and uh, any identities about yourself you'd like to highlight? Well, I am a woman, so I'm a woman in STEM, I am of mixed heritage, mixed background. Um, I am a sister, a daughter, and uh, a dog mom. Oh, nice. What kind of dog do you have? Yep. So her name's Pepper, and she's a blue healer mix. Uh, she's she's very sweet. I'm realizing I always ask people that question, but I don't know my dog breeds. So I'm like, dog, friendly dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. She didn't, that's good enough. Yeah, she's just a little mutt of a dog. So <laughs> Okay. And lastly, before we go into the more personal stuff, what are your roles and positions on campus? So my primary role is as a graduate researcher. So I'm working on my PhD. I'm actually in the, the finishing stages of my PhD. I'll be defending in a few months. And I am studying what's called a special committee PhD. It's basically a one-of-a-kind custom-built PhD that the graduate school lets you do if you can justify the need to do that. And the title of my PhD will be Astrobiology and Prebiotic Chemistry. Um, I'm also a Kohler Science Fellow, which is a program sponsored by the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery to promote science art fusion collaborations. Uh, and I'm also a NASA fellow in the Future Investigators for Earth and Space Science and Technology program. So very busy person. And really, that's not all you <laughs> do, bit. too. Like I I first heard of you, I think, via Twitter and then via TikTok. And then you just kept popping up in WPR articles and like media around campus. It's like, I have to talk to this person <laughs> a little bit. You're a local celebrity. And possibly international celebrity a bit, too. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but <laughs> yeah, it's still fairly new to me. So I don't identify as like a 
social media psychomer yet, but yeah, I guess that is, that is something to know about me is that in addition to my roles as a grad student and on campus, I do quite a bit of science communication on primarily on TikTok, but a little bit on Twitter. It is weird. Um, with this podcast, I also, I fell into this completely accidentally. I just thought it'd be fun to do. And then it just kept going. I've told them stories and they're like, oh yeah, like I heard that story before. It's like, I've that's the first time I've ever told you that story. It's like, uh, but they, in their head, they've heard it on the podcast. And uh, now they've thought they've had conversations with me about it. They've never had. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I mean, it's coming from you, right? Just from a different channel, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to put in the work of actually having conversation. <laughs> People would just listen to me the entire time. That's, that's what I want. So also, because you're studying and you've got this unique PhD, you're doing some cool stuff in lab. Could you give us like a two minute research pitch of what you actually work on? Absolutely. So I am interested in what's probably still the biggest unopened or unanswered mystery in science. And that is how life got started on this planet and the sort of related question of whether life exists elsewhere. So are we alone or not? And it's a very, very broad set of questions that requires input from lots of different areas. But the particular area I'm focusing on is how you get biology. So chemistry that behaves like life in the absence of biology. So um, we can think about it as the chemistry to biology transition on the early earth. And in a way that does not implicate talented chemists and scientists tinkering around. So really trying to understand how the conditions on a planet like the early earth could lead to the chemistry of life. Uh, and so I carry out laboratory experiments to try to figure that out. And also one of my interests is to figure out how understanding that transition puts us in a position to ask questions about the potential for life on other worlds and importantly, detecting that life if it exists. Okay. So do you have a simple answer to what is life? No. <laughs> okay. No. And, yeah. and turns out that is, that is pretty much the, the biggest problem at the heart of astrobiology, which is this field dedicated to trying to answer questions about the origin and distribution of life is that we don't actually know what life is beyond just our subjective experience of it. Right. So there are about, there are as many definitions of life as there are people at this, at this moment in time, which is great and very elegant, but from a scientific perspective is really challenging. Um, and most of that is that we don't have another example of life. So, um, no, I don't know what life is. And, um, that's partially what we're trying to figure out through these kinds of experiments and research programs. Yeah, I think it's a, another great example of humans trying to put things into a box when there's just going to be kind of this grayscale. I don't think we like the idea of it being a grayscale because we like to be alive, but it is kind of that. Technically, you know, in philosophical terms, we don't actually know whether life is something that's inherently definable. So what we perceive as this this category of being alive might not actually be real. It might be artificial. Um, and without another example of life, we don't actually know for sure whether life is something that can be defined, which I think is just mind blowing. But and some people might be uncomfortable with that. But I personally find it very exciting to think about. <laughs> yeah, hopefully listeners aren't just like turning this off and like, I can't deal with this today. <laughs> this is too, this I mean, is too that, existential. Yeah, I mean, that would make, you know, I eat. I would join them probably today because, yeah, <laughs> as a scientist, studying that question is, as you might imagine, really, really difficult and very existential. So, and it's hard to separate the kind of science from the existential part of that question. Right. And I'm curious how you got there, too. Uh, first, I do want to go back um, to the childhood with one of my favorite questions of who was your first crush? I think I had a few. <laughs> I was one of those kids that had like lots of crushes and lots of different spheres of my life. But the one I recall very distinctly, like literally wanting to meet this person and marry them uh, was Jeff Corwin, who is this naturalist um, featured heavily on Animal Planet, which I don't know if that still exists, but man, that I was just fascinated with this man and so smitten. And I... Yeah, it's definitely my first crush. I also like, you know, Nick Carter, like the boy bands and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, definitely Jeff Corwin was like the first distinct, like serious crush I had. Nice. Were you ever into, um, oh my gosh, I'm playing on his name, Steve Irwin? Yeah, I was obsessed with Steve Irwin. He was my idol. It was, I'll never forget the day he passed away. That was like the first real grief I ever experienced as a kid. 
Um, so I've been very lucky up until that point not to experience any losses, but I remember just being absolutely devastated by that. But yeah, I never thought I never had a crush on Steve Irwin. I always just thought he was like my idol. I loved him, but yeah. (laughs) You had some biology in your childhood. When did you start also thinking like maybe this can expand past earth that you have like a, a telescope in, in the early years obsessed with planets, um, seeing alien movies. So definitely that interest came on very late in my life in the last few years leading right up to grad school. I definitely wasn't a kid that you would have looked at and predicted would first of all, be in astrobiology, let like be in science at all. Um, I was never really good in science in school. I also just wasn't really good in school. I, I was kind of a minimal effort person. Um, and I was very much on the ground, um, was very much into art. Uh, I rode horses. That was my hobby. And I didn't really see much past that. But in my last year of high school, I had an opportunity to do a internship at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, which opened my eyes to the world of, of marine biology And I was obsessed with that. And that's actually why I decided to go to college to pursue biology. I initially entered as a marine biologist. um, And then I was one of those college kids that like every class I took, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. So it it switched around a lot within biology and then landed on molecular biology, which is what I continue to do um, until the end and through my master's. And then in the last stages of my master's is when I discovered astrobiology. And that's when I made the decision and I haven't looked back since. So it wasn't until later in my career uh, that I discovered astrobiology and kind of committed to it fully. Yeah, it's also funny, like you were mentioning in college, you took a new course that became what you wanted to do. I still have that problem. And I almost done with my PhD. Uh, I had something earlier today. I was like, maybe I can do that. I still have that too. I definitely still have that. I, I would, you know, people, my favorite questions to answer are like, what, if you weren't an astrobiologist, what would you do? Because I have like a million answers and it just changes day to day. Um, but I think I know astrobiology is my home because it really never ceases to be like my number one. <laughs> I can't think of questions that just captivate me and fascinate me as much as the ones that I get to ask as an astrobiologist. So my interests still are all over the place, but like astrobiology is my home for sure. I'd imagine as an astrobiologist, you would probably get one of two reactions. One, either people being like, whoa, that's like such a cool field or two, what is astrobiology? <laughs> yeah. And even from other scientists too, you know, it, astrobiology is, it's, it's new enough and niche enough still. It is growing and I would call it an up and coming field at this point, but it's still, most people don't know it's a real thing. Um, including other scientists, which I think I'm selfishly, I always think is awesome because I get to be the one to tell them about it. (laughs) And I love that because I know for a lot of people, it's going to be a light switch moment. Um, the way it was for me, you know, when you realize it's a real thing you can do, you're like, that's what I want to do. Um, so knowing that I might have that influence on people just selfishly makes me very excited. (laughs) Do you like in your current work, think back to working in the shed at all? I mean, you got a pretty darn good experience being able to go work at the shed, like top notch aquarium for sure. Do you dream of like dugongs or porpoises on other planets? Yeah, I do. I still really, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for marine biology. And I mean, it wasn't just the shed. It wasn't even crazier than that. I got to spend two weeks on their research vessel in the Bahamas as part of this internship where we would go on daily snorkels and carry out little research projects right there in the Caribbean. And I mean, it's hard to think of any more like idyllic experience to like discover the world of science. Um, And I still think about it and go, yeah, I could do that again. I could, I could spend my career doing that. So I am thinking of ways, you know, in the long term of how I could reconcile my interest in astrobiology with opportunities to do really cool, like ocean based uh, studies that involve some kind of field work in very ideal locations like the Bahamas. Right. And I feel like that's, I mean, one of the theories is, you know, life may for other planets start in the ocean. So I feel like that's, that's a perfect overlap. Yeah. The oceans feature very prominently in astrobiology. So there's a huge area within astrobiology that, that in which ocean science and marine biology feature heavily. Uh, and maybe even here on earth, we don't know where life got started, but it's safe to assume that water had something to do with it, whether it was in a you know full-blown deep ocean or some kind of more surface pool of some kind, definitely water and, and oceans feature in astrobiology very heavily. 
Well, I'm, I'm really glad you get that experience. Um, I feel oftentimes reflecting now, especially as kids, what you think of a scientist is someone who's like mysterious in a lab doing experiments, whatever those experiments are. When you are taught science, it's just like all fact-based, but it's, it's really hard to find anything that's applied. So that applied experience made the difference for you. It, it got you excited. Oh yeah. It's it 100% attribute my entry into science to that because as I mentioned, I was never that good in science in school. Uh, I just didn't, school was not, I, I didn't have a great time in school. Uh, I didn't get along with my classmates and I really just was looking for any opportunity to leave school. So because most of my scientific training, as most of us when we're kids was associated with school, it, it wasn't something that I resonated with. Um, and I feel like if, if I hadn't had that experience with the shed, that would have continued to be the case. Um, and so the fact that I got my first firsthand experience with doing actual science was out in the field doing this really fantastic research with experienced marine biologists and other students was like 100%. I know I owe my entry into science to that experience. Wonderful. So you mentioned growing up in Chicago. Uh, I think I snooped enough to find out that you went to school in California, I believe. Was that undergrad and master's? Yes, both undergrad and master's. So I did my undergrad at Cal State Long Beach, which has a very good marine biology program. Um, because that's initially what I wanted to go to school for. And then I did my master's a little bit north of there in Northridge. So California State University, Northridge. How was that transition for you from going to uh, Chicago to Southern California? I loved it. That, that was That's a very good direction to go in, you know, from Midwest winters to California. The, the other way around this was not as easy. <laughs> but yeah, no, I loved that. You know, it was, it was, I was, first time living away from my parents, kind of going off and being an independent young adult, whatever that means. Um, California was a great place to do that. You know, just amazing weather, beaches. Um, so yeah, I loved it. And then after that, how did you wind up at Madison, um, especially trying to go into a field that didn't exist here? Yeah. So that was, it was kind of by accident. So I'm a, I'm a very organized person. Um, I'm, you know, when I have deadlines, fellowship applications, grad school applications, I'm very organized and I plan ahead. And I, when I knew I wanted to find astrobiology research opportunities for grad school, I had, you know, months ahead of application season had identified where I wanted to go. I'd established contact with faculty. UW Madison was not in that list. Um, so I'd already submitted all my applications into the day before applications were due, which I think was like December 1st, someone in my cohort in my master's program was like, Hey, have you applied for UW Madison? Because this, this faculty member just popped up who, who does astrobiology research turns out to be my current advisor, David Baum. And I was like, no. And I don't know what compelled me. I didn't even reach out to David, you know, which I would have preferred to do. And I just applied, sent an application and literally like with a few hours to spare, on the deadline and then reached out to David and he was like, yeah, we should probably chat. And I was like, yeah, we should. Um, and you know, it was offered an interview and it offered a spot at the school and I had lots of other good offers and I don't know, something brought me here, something about the project, something about Madison and UW Madison. So I just think it's funny that like for all the planning I did, I went with the most impromptu <laughs> last minute decision. So yeah, what brought me here was really this project and the opportunity to work on in this lab specifically. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's similar to what you're doing now It's like, you can, you maybe have all these vials of different precursors. You organize as much as you can, and then you just throw it to the wind. For, for sure. And actually I would say that's a pretty good allegory for science in general, right? Like you do all this planning, you have all these expectations of what, what should work and what you, what needs to happen. Uh, and then usually that's not what happens, right? It's some kind of accident or, or side observation that you weren't expecting, um, that leads you in a different direction, but a very fruitful one. So yeah, I guess that is a good way to, <laughs> to frame science in general. Uh, it is a lot of taming of chaos. Um, and I was actually listening to, um, an interview that the Association for the Advancement of Science had last night with Alan Alda 
um, he stopped by. So huge Alan Alda fan. He has had a fun venture into science communication, I think, especially maybe in the later half of his life. Um, but he had he just made a good point with science is that we it's a lot like news in that we are just constantly learning and things are changing. Um, although we can establish some quote unquote facts, um, those can always be revised. And it is trying to organize that chaos. And I guess chaos being like, how do things work? Okay, so I feel like I, I've done my due diligence to not just dive strictly into you making all your TikTok videos. <laughs> but I, I'm very like, so you came to UW Madison um, to do these projects and you're still doing them. Was the creation of your TikTok and kind of getting into um, science communication a pandemic like outlet? Yeah, indirectly, yes. I think it was indirectly related to the pandemic, only in the sense that me downloading the app TikTok in the first place was definitely at the height of the pandemic. Around the same time, I think most people uh, hopped on it, unless they were already famous on TikTok. Um, and it was just to, to be entertained, right? To just consume some silly, fun, interesting TikTok content. So in a way, yeah, if I hadn't downloaded the app, then I probably would have never made the switch to actually creating content to myself. But the actual science communication part that I do there now, uh, I think arose for a different reason. I actually don't even really know what compelled me to do that either. <laughs> um, it was my first video was actually about PowerPoint. It was not about science. I happened upon this learn on TikTok side of things where people actually share expertise about skills, resources, um, anything from like photography tips to baking, cooking like that. And so I don't know why I just thought, you know, I know this weird thing about TikTok. I'm, I just want to make a video about it and see if it'll resonate with people, if people will be interested. And sure enough, they were, it blew up, it got like half a million views. Um, and so of course I decided to ride that wave and created a little series about how to use PowerPoint for presentations. And then when that kind of ran out of steam, I was like, well, you know, I wonder if I could start talking about my science about astrobiology and see if there's interest there. And yeah, there definitely was. And the rest is history. I started with a couple news series like astrobiology news and people started asking me questions as they discovered that astrobiology was a thing. And then, yeah, the content just ideas just started coming up with themselves and yeah, here we are. Yeah. And I feel like you have covered quite a, a different amount of ground. You know, you started with the PowerPoints and now you have a rate and alien series. You still have some, I think you're still making introductory videos for like how your science actually goes about. It. And you've got the, your, your chamber and also random dance moves that you can do in the lab. Uh, so quite the breadth of uh, talents you have. Yeah. The, the trends, the dances are, it, it's, uh, it feels <laughs> those are the funnest ones to me. I know they're not science relevant, but yeah, just, you know, showing people that I'm actually a person and I guess trying to stay relevant with all the TikTok trending sounds and dances. <laughs> are you, uh, okay. Are you, would you consider yourself like a cool kid? That's like keeping up on trends. I think I've, I've given that up uh, before I was even cool. No, not really. <laughs> I don't know. I always like to think, you know, I mentor some undergrad. I'm not Gen Z. I'm a millennial through and through, you know, so I always think like, oh my gosh, this millennial trying to, you know, <laughs> go undercover as a Gen Zer and do all these dance trends. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. And my, my mentees, you know, are, are younger than me. And I always, they always kind of poke fun at me because they're like, look, you're trying to stay relevant, trying to, you know, gain favor with all the, the younger folks. So yeah, we know you have skinny <laughs> jeans. Don't try to lie to us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I started parting my hair down the middle, you know, with, given with their advice, cause I was parting it on the side, which apparently is a no. For <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'd be able to pull that off. Yeah. And, and I also noticed, um, on your website too, you've got a, a little bit of a consulting um, route as well. Do you feel like with the amount of success you've been able to have on TikTok now, it's like, oh, I can add maybe a little bit more entertainment value to some of the consulting that you do? Yeah, de definitely. Although um, the consulting part came before TikTok. So I've been doing this now for about a year. Um, I am currently working with an author, a New York Times bestseller, on her upcoming sci-fi novel as a, a just a general science advisor, science consultant. 
uh, you know, just helping make sense of technical information. Her, a lot of her novels have, uh, scientists feature heavily. Her name is Chloe Benjamin, by the way, she offered, uh, the immortalists that was bestseller, I think two years ago. Um, so a lot of science and scientists feature in her novels and she really wanted help, uh, I guess, making sure that those things were as accurate as possible and help make sense of technical uh, information from lots of different areas. And that's been really fun. And that's always something I've been considering doing more of uh, as I move forward, you know, bringing my expertise, my abilities as, a, as an academic to help bring science and fact-based discourse to other areas. Um, and so that was always kind of the the long game I was trying to play is, is bring science to those areas. And then TikTok just kind of amplified that for sure. Um, and I'm hoping to use that to find more opportunities to do that kind of science advising and consulting work. Um, but in a way it's, it's just accelerated and expanded what I w- was already trying to do, which is bring science and, and distribute it more broadly, uh, which TikTok turns out is excellent for. Yeah. I, I, uh, shunned TikTok in the beginning, but I think after watching some of your videos and other random stuff on there, it's like, I like, so my response in the the beginning of the pandemic when I was living by myself was to walk around the apartment doing different voices and characters um, because we couldn't interact with people. And that's what I do. Um, And I was like, I just thought like last night, maybe people would also uh, enjoy that on the TikTok. Absolutely. That is definitely... Yes, you, there is definitely a niche for that on TikTok that are, that exists that I think you would fit right into with that. So I could see that being quite successful. If I'm good at it, that's the part you don't know. I could be doing these voices and think they're all different characters in the same exact voice. That's true. Although if you don't put yourself out there, you won't know for sure. That's true. Yes. <laughs> and TikTok uh, is a great way to get that feedback because people are brutally honest on there. So... <laughs> Tight. Yeah. And I think some of your videos have been dealing with quote unquote, uh, haters on there. And it's also a very different scene than I think uh, a lot of academics will get to see in their life. Like maybe they'll, you know, for the work, they'll get critiqued. Um, if something goes really terribly, then they might have people get, or they might blow up in the news at some point. Um, but not in the way that social media can anonymize haters, how have you, how have you coped with that? Cause I'm, I know people have said some, some garbage stuff, but. I think the main way is that so far it seems to be coming from a very small minority of people. I think, you know, o- overwhelmingly the response is so positive and excited about what it is I have to offer that it really makes those haters and the, the negative comments insignificant. Although it does, it does definitely have an effect. You know, there were a couple of videos I made and that's the other fascinating thing with TikTok, by the way, is that your videos can land in front of completely different audiences, you know, so within the, you could post back to back and depending on how the algorithm treats it, it could land in front of completely different audiences. Um, and that's been my experience. Some of my videos just get on the wrong side of TikTok, and, um, you know, that, that, that ratio of positive to negativity is, is, is skews a little bit, uh, towards the negative. And I've had a few videos do that, especially on, on topics like responsible space exploration, which I'm a big advocate for. Um, yeah, people have very strong opinions about that and I'm not entirely sure what I actually, I do know where that comes from <clears throat> Elon Musk. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, it uh, it's a little bit unpredictable, but I think, you know, just knowing that it's, it's, it's such a small percentage of people and those people are really just doing it to be inflammatory, to troll, um, and just kind of living in the positivity that is overwhelmingly present. Um, and then just ignoring blocking. I've gotten very comfortable with the block button. And I, that is, if, if anyone happens to be listening and is new to kind of social media, uh, content creation, definitely do not hesitate to block people. It, I know that the inclination is to engage and to kind of make, you know, try to convince them that they don't, they shouldn't be that mean. Um, you're wasting your time and it, it, it definitely has a mental, ho- a mental health cost. So just, just block people. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, you feel very powerful doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll always be more people to watch. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay, so you're doing the social media. I didn't even know you were consulting on a book. Mm-hmm. You probably consulted in the past. You're still dealing with the PhD. You're part of this. Uh, I, I haven't even asked you about NASA yet. I'll get to that. I do not get to this later. I uh, totally spaced. Uh, but my, I was just going to go with um, how do you how do you accomplish and balance all of this? 
yeah, not very elegantly, you know, but I am getting better and better. And I think, um, I think it's learning to adjust my expectations for how much work I'm getting done in any one of these avenues. Uh, and in a way, actually having all these different things pulling me in one direction helps me not get really bogged down in one particular thing, which is where I use, which is where I tend to experience burnout is when my attention is just focused on this one big thing. Um, and I really just don't come up for air ever. Um, but I also don't deal well with not doing anything at all. Like I'm one of those people who just endlessly guilts myself when I am doing nothing, uh, which is not healthy. Um, but my solution is just to work on something else. Um, and all those things I think, uh, use different, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of overlap in what skills and, uh, characteristics of mine they pull from, but, uh, I found it for me, it works really well to have these different things. Uh, going on. And so I'm a big scheduler, you know, I'm, I have redundant schedules, written ones, Google calendar ones, outlook ones, uh, and just making sure I book, book time and, you know, even free time. Unfortunately, I'm those people, I'm a person who has to book free time in my own calendar, but that just works for me. It's just having a schedule and making sure that I diversify my day in terms of what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, probably also similarly, you have some of this work that you're doing is also very energizing. Um, so I think with this podcast and the opportunities that have come from it, it's, um, I can get lost in all the creativity that comes from it and it also starts to blend the work and the fun. Just also to sympathize, um, I'm also the person who has to tell myself you like Sundays, go see a friend Saturdays, take the day off. Stop thinking about things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and related to the the kind of rewarding side of it, I that has been the surprising thing with TikTok for me. And I know oh, I get this question a lot, even from my family members. Like, yeah, that's too much. Like, you know, the TikTok is is just adding to an already busy schedule. But the thing is that research is really hard. Um, you know, just had mishaps today. You know, things don't go as planned, and experiments fail, and um, that can be that can be a little bit demoralizing. You know. As much as I'm aware that that is the natural process of science, it doesn't make it any easier to deal with those blows when they happen. And so having this thing I do at night, which is where I get to talk about the science, the bigger picture, and get other people excited with me is a great way to kind of restore, re-energize my, my motivation for the next day to be like, you know, I am doing this for a reason. And there is a bigger picture and there's a ball to keep my eyes on. Um, so... For me, just having that diversity of different outlets and different activities is is not just it not not only does it work for me, it actually makes sure that I can keep going. <laughs> and I've I know I've had friends of mine I've had friends of mine ask me, why are you friends with me since you're so like so focused on like the the podcast and like building it? But it is like it's it's a good creative outlet, it's fun and energizing. And like, I think I just talk about it a lot because I'm, I'm excited. And, you know, I would also imagine like for you, I, I kind of believe in the stuff that I'm doing. The fact that graduate students have come to me and said like, oh, listening to your podcast got me through a really tough week or capturing distinguished faculty saying like, oh, I, I had imposter syndrome until maybe like my 60s or I got rejected from graduate school or didn't get tenure. Uh, all of that is advancing, I think just the realm of science and just humanizing people for sure. And I, I, it's so great to see your videos too, because like you're saying, astrobiology is very niche, but you get to introduce it to people in a new way. Um, and who's not going to watch a video about you rating aliens? Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly why I started that series. Cause you know, I was trying to think about how, how do I bring other people into astrobiology? What are some entry points I can explore? to get people interested enough to listen and learn about it. And this is perfect, right? Because you don't need to have an interest in science or astrobiology to be interested in science fiction and movies and TV and different alien depictions. And so I found that that is a very good way to get people onto the fact that there is a area of expertise that allows you to comment on these kinds of things from a scientific perspective. And I think that's worked out really well. So with all the projects that you're doing too, do you have people that you're working with? different teams like you mentioned having undergrads in lab do you have people also help create tiktok 
um, ideas for you or? Yeah, currently no team, except um, I'm very lucky that my, my sister is a social media manager uh, and she's a, she's not on my payroll yet because I'm not making any money from TikTok yet. Um, but so she's informally my team. Um, but no, at this point, the, all the, you know, content creation, the actual recording, producing of it is all coming from me, uh, which is fun. I think having control over all those aspects is very empowering and it's, it's great, but, uh, in the future, depending on how this scales and whether it becomes more, I, I end up putting more of my efforts towards that, uh, it will probably need a team, uh, or at least some kind of agent to help me field through different, like, uh, collaboration opportunities, things like that. Um, but yeah, definitely, certainly in my graduate work and my, my, my research, uh, that is absolutely a team effort, both here on campus with, with our research group, but also collaborations we have with others at other institutions. Yeah. And you mentioned payroll and this is actually something I wrote down in, it's not a question, but I just wrote in my notes for this interview, crazy taxes. Because um, I imagine like your fellowships, your actual payroll, anything that you come in with, like your independent business, uh, that must be a headache. It is. Uh, the fellowship aspect of it is 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 hard, you know, not not being taxed uh, and having uh, taxes withheld and having to calculate that. But then also doing, uh, you know, taxed work for freelance and things like that. Yeah, it's going to be a mess. Probably going to have to hire a tax person this year or next year. <laughs> Yeah. And if you find anybody, let me know, because I'm also in that weird situation. Will do. <laughs> Perfect. OK, so I wanted to get to a few more deeper questions before we go into our improvised game. Thinking about astrobiology and thinking about these very small molecules that may or may not lead to lifelike qualities, has this changed your perspective on life in general, do you think at all? I think so. I think, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I do think that outside of astrobiology, especially in the general public, there is this sense that life is this very special, improbable thing that we happen to have because, you know, add, odds just stacked against each other and we kind of beat them. Uh, that it was this very rare event, single event, uh, that we don't expect would happen again easily. And so there's this idea that life is very fragile. It's very rare. Uh, that we are probably alone. Um, and I know I definitely had that sense before I, I started really getting into the science of astrobiology and realizing that scientifically, there's really no reason for us to think that, that that's true. Uh, yes, we don't currently have another example of life, but I like to you know just toss it up to our current lack of understanding of what life is and our, our limited abilities to search for life at this point, uh, which seem extensive, but they really aren't when you think about it. We really haven't looked when it comes down to it. Um, but scientifically, we don't have any reason to think that life is a rare thing that only happens under a certain set of conditions, and therefore we don't expect to be present elsewhere. Uh, and I think that that has fundamentally changed how I think about life and its distribution. Um, in fact, based on certain models for the origin of life, including our own, which is that life starts with simple chemical networks that happen to acquire some properties fairly easily. And when they happen to be in conditions that allow them to stick around for long enough, you get life. Um, that, that seems to point to the fact that life is easy and that it seems to arise where it can. And I think that changes the landscape drastically when you look around at the universe. When you start thinking of life probably exists where it can exist, um, then I feel like, like that just sent chills on my arms. I know you can't see my goosebumps, but just the thing that life could, that the universe would be teeming with life because turns out it's pretty easy. Um, I think just existentially just changes things quite a bit, you know, and um, just not just as a scientist, right. Does there might actually be life for us to discover out there and study. Um, but just to know that we are probably not alone, that there are other instances of life that might look very weird that might defy our understanding of what life is currently. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I think in hindsight, and like hearing your question or your answer to the question, which is great, I think you're the closest I've ever come to like the stereotype of a mad scientist in a lab trying to create life. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, yeah, spot pretty on. much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a time um, sometime in my undergrad. So I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. And I think I was on this train. I think I was taking like a virology class. 
which is also, you know, viruses aren't technically life, but they're still advanced, more advanced than like the protochemicals that you're using at this point. So I, I checked out a book and was reading like a few, on a few chapters is just self-assembling membranes, which seems so easy, not easy to do, but I guess like mundane that it's not, wouldn't be anything of importance, but that just that barrier just forms inside and outside, which can just propagate all of other things to happen. Yeah. And that is really the, the lesson I think we've learned from doing origin of life science. So really the, the, the field of astrobiology that's dedicated to trying to understand how life got started. The lesson we keep having over and over again is that all of these pieces, right? So when we look at life currently as it is, and we try to identify what are, what are its key components, what are its key characteristics, the fact that it has a membrane, that it has genetics and these special polymers like DNA and RNA, the fact that it divides, it grows and evolves, all those pieces individually um, seem to work pretty easily. Like we've, we have multiple explanations for how those things could arise independently under in the absence of life and in the absence of a chemist kind of tinkering with these things. But so far, what we haven't figured out is how all those things came together and produced kind of a functional living system that could persist and evolve long enough to give rise to the complexity we see today. So in that point, I think the conclusion for most of us is that that points to a fundamental lack of understanding about what life is and why it arises and less about the chemical specifics. Um, because so far the chemistry seems to work, you know, we, we identify a problem and we say, Oh, we don't know how you got X from Y. The chemists come in and are like, Oh, here's a hundred different ways that could happen. The question is why that happened, right? What were the conditions? Why did this happen? Right. I mean, it seems kind of unscientific to think of it that way, you know, cause then you start personifying things, you know, giving, start describing behaviors in terms of human terms, like, oh, it wanted to, or it, <laughs> there was a deity doing it. Um, but that really is the, the problem we're having is why did these things happen? And why are they the way they are right now? Were there other alternatives? So um, yeah, the protocell stuff is, we have so many different systems of, of how membranes can come together under very simple t- conditions. And yet we don't understand how it actually did happen. So yeah, very exciting to think about. Yeah, it would be pretty funny if the reason for life in the end was like peer pressure, just like all these protocells were doing it and they're like, I guess I'll do it too. I guess I'll do it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the peer pressure model for the origin of life. Yeah, <laughs> that's my thought. <laughs> Having never done any of the experiments um, or not being in the field, that's my hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> just some molecules with FOMO, just... <laughs> Yeah. 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 Protocells invented FOMO. We thought you were so smart. Um, Another open-ended question for you. Is there a personality trait that you really like about yourself? And is there one that you'd like to improve upon? I think my two answers are sort of related. I think one is just that I never cease to be curious about things. Like I, I can never leave something that I'm curious about untouched. Like I have to go figure it out and almost to a fault. Like, um, my recent obsession is, is space weather, like the sun and how it sends off massive amounts of plasma hurling our way. And then we get a bunch of cool stuff like radio blackouts and radiation storms and Aurora. Um, like that's not something I can just be like, Oh yeah, that's the thing that exists. And I like superficial, no, I have to do like a mini PhD on it. Um, (laughs) I have to understand same things with like little, little things in my life. Um, and I love that about myself. I think that that is a good quality to have as a scientist, but also just as a human being. Um, the downside is that I, is that it means that I can never just do things superficially and, and ends up costing me a lot in terms of time and energy and effort. Um, and I realize it's not something like people don't need to, to know about, you know, the, uh, (laughs) the inner working workings of lightning over dinner, you know? Um, so yeah, I wish I could let things go a little bit and be satisfied with not knowing everything about them, but I also, it's something that I like about myself. So (laughs) maybe this is going to be a stressful question. Maybe not. Um, as someone who's organized and also a planner, maybe you've already had your next steps, but I'm curious, like, since you have so many options, which is, is probably fortunate, but also can be debilitating. Um, yeah. What are you thinking next? And do you have an idea what you want to be when you grow up? 
So the answer to the last question is yes. I have some big long-term goals. Um, I would love to keep doing astrobiology research, maybe be in some kind of leadership position doing that. Um, I have like a hypothetical center for astrobiology that I'm kind of cooking up and would love to, to see realized at some point. I also really love science policy. And like, I have this dream of being like a science advisor for some high ranking official somewhere making some big decisions. Um, and then also just keep doing science communication, um, and try to broaden the, the reach of, of science as much as possible. So those are kind of like my loose goals for the future in terms of immediate next steps. I think, um, I have my eyes on a lot of different places and, at this point, I think what I'm going to do is continue on the academic path. So uh, I'm looking at a few postdoc opportunities. Some are looking really good. And so I think at least for the time being, for the next step, I'm going to stay on the academic path and then see where that takes me, whether I stay or whether I take that experience elsewhere. But I think for right now, I'm pretty committed to doing postdoc research in astrobiology. So that's the immediate plan. We'll see how that goes. And of course, keep doing TikTok and hopefully the consulting work on the side as well, just to, to keep those, those lines open. Cool. Are you thinking of going to a new place or sticking around? Well, so I can't say, t- I, it's, I can't say too much, but um, put it this mm. way. I may not be leaving. I may not be leaving at the end of my PhD. We'll see. We'll see, which is, was not the plan. I was kind of hoping that I would leave and go experience a new place, but the way things have worked out, um, let's say the universe has put a person very close to here. <laughs> more, more information TBD, but yeah, so I may not be leaving. I may be staying. Cool. Cool. And yeah. I've, I've, so I'm trying to commit myself to at least on this podcast, um, to make it more of a open regular dialogue, ask a question that involves climate change, at least a little bit. When you were thinking about, perhaps sticking around, I think I'll, I will probably do the same. So I'm also graduating in, in spring, ideally. And one of my considerations was like, Madison is actually a pretty good place regarding climate change, which is a weird thought to even consider, but it's, it's, it's very real. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, you know, so my instinct when I was thinking about next steps is I would love to go back to Southern California. I, I love Southern California. That's where my family currently is. Um, but Southern California is a pretty rough place to be in right now uh, with wildfires and and all the other <laughs> inclement weather recently as well, which is weird for Southern California. So, um, yeah, I think Madison comparatively, despite the really rough winter, which apparently we're about to head into a really rough winter this year, is uh, is looking comparatively better. But, yeah, I love I love Madison for lots of reasons, not just the fact that um, it might be well off. Yeah, there are also fun things to do here. One of which is to play improv games with random strangers you meet on the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I think it's time to move to that. Uh, before I tell you what we're going to do, I need some suggestions. I need four suggestions. The first of which um, is one of your favorite foods. Mashed potatoes. Do sweet potatoes also count? in that just out of curiosity yes they do count i guess just not maybe as highly ranked yeah no just a traditional like gold potato or a russet potato i don't even know what a good mashed potato potato is (laughs) with skins yeah um maybe i think just gold potatoes are my favorite (laughs) I feel like someone could easily deceive you about what mashed potatoes are. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> a, a high school band you were really into. I didn't l- listen to a lot of bands in high school. I was very much a like hip-hop, rap, R&B person. So I lived in Chicago. <laughs> um, so any group? Yeah. Let's do TLC. TLC. Okay. Uh, something that annoys you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what was this? <laughs> something that annoys me. Oh man. Uh, oh, uh, like angles. How do, how do you explain that? When things aren't lined up properly. Like right now, I, just, I had to fit when I came in here I had to fix notebooks because they were like on an angle. 
uh, I don't know what you call that. <laughs> I'm sure this is specific. Word. I I wrote down non-parallel stacks, which I, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's yeah, that, that's that's good. Okay, cool. <laughs> I think people will resonate with that no matter what. Uh, and my last one for you: um, an animal you see around your neighborhood. You're running running the mill animal. Oh, um, bunnies, rabbits. Oh, true. All right. So here is our game. Um, so you spend some time on TikTok ranking aliens from fictional places. Uh, but I thought it might be fun if you actually got to interview an alien. And we can flip this around as well. So you can be the first interview interviewer. And I will be the first alien. And so we'll, we'll meet. We can act like we're on a stage somewhere. Um, but I... I'm an alien. I can't get enough mashed potatoes. And I've come to Earth because I really want to meet TLC. Wow. And then okay. I'll tell you I'll tell you your alien role later on. To help me out. So my first concert that I went to was Modest Mouse, which probably reveals a lot that I'm I'm a hipster white guy. Um, can you tell me a little bit about TLC so I can have some stuff to work with? Yeah. So TLC was a, a female group. I guess their music would loosely fall into the hip hop R and B category. Unfortunately, at least one member has passed away. Um, but they had some hits like no scrubs and waterfalls chasing waterfalls. Oh. I think it might have just been one of yes. yes. Um, and they were just amazing. A lot of woman power, um, really awesome music videos that at the time were showing on MTV. Uh, so yeah, that's TLC in a nutshell. Okay, cool. Um, I'm sure improvising a character who loves TLC um, with no uh, <laughs> with no background on it, and as a white guy, this will not fail. I'm sure. I'm positive of it. Um, okay. So any, any questions so far? So you can ask whatever questions you want. I, you have the information. I love mashed potatoes and I want to meet TLC, which already sounds like it's going to be a challenge, but, uh. well, where are you from? Well, glad you asked. Uh, I am from my home planet of planet 27 and it is, it's just, it's so lovely. We have just the most gorgeous plants growing everywhere my favorite personally is ones you can dig up under from the ground and on the bottom by their like root system are all these tubers and i just i do this thing you know some i don't know if it's yellow i don't know if it's just straight white sometimes with skins maybe sweet potatoes but I just throw them all together and cook them. Um, it's absolutely favorite. But that's, I think that's it's a traditional Planet 27 food. Wow. So you have plants with tubers, something similar to potatoes. So I'm assuming that Planet 27 is pretty similar to Earth. Absolutely. We've got a very similar atmosphere, and that's why I can breathe here as well. Just 90% of the planet is covered in water. So I also have gills that help me a little bit. Notice that. Yeah, yeah. and sometimes... You know, I, I'm out, I'm really busy. I'm trying to find, I've got two kids and sometimes they're real climbers and they love to climb around like rock features. And like you were saying, there's, there's a lot of water. So sometimes I, I chase them through waterfalls, um, which made me really love this band on earth. The reason why I'm here, uh, TLC. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. My next question was going to be why TLC, but it sounds like waterfalls is one big reason. Anything musically about TLC that is resonates with aliens. <laughs> I live TLC. All all their albums they have dropped, I think, were just uh, little bits of my life here and there. You know, there's there's album number one, there's album number two, and three, and possibly four. Um, and each one of those had a little bit where I just felt so connected to. Whether it's the mashed potatoes, uh, whether it's chasing kids through waterfalls, all their hits I felt was just, uh, just, just were screaming my name, which is Blorgix. Uh, it was like TLC was just speaking right to Blorgix. 
Floor cakes. Okay, awesome. So do you have music on Plan 27? Like, does it compare to TLC or what is music like on Plan no, 27? I've learned of these things called instruments while being on Earth, and we don't have any of those. But we are we recently, we're just getting radio waves. Um, so I'm really into mid-90s, late-90s music at the moment. And so I like I'm, I feel like I'm going to be really cool when I go back and like, oh, now I know glass animals and people are like what do you what do you mean glass animals um and i'll be like, just wait just wait 10 15 years i could have brought a buck but uh just wait their most recent album so good and we can stop there if you want if you want to switch around okay <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> now i will be interviewing you and you are an alien that loves non-parallel stacks they love chaos and uh, disorganization in their office spaces. Um, and you've also come to Earth because you want to save all the bunnies. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. Feel ready? You can have a little bit of think of your character. Stefania, thank you uh, for joining me on the stage here in Madison, Wisconsin. I know this is your first destination. As you know, we're the capital of, of bunnies across all the world. Uh, and I understand you want to come save them. Um, why are you so interested in bunnies? You know, I think that there is a lot that species across galaxies can learn from bunnies. Um, they have found a way to reproduce extensively without damaging their environment, which I think there is a lesson there for many of us, including humans, which I'm hoping to instill while I'm here. And, you know, there's just something very, there's elegant simplicity in their lifestyle. And I believe, we believe as a spokesperson for my species that they need to be protected. Is one of the reasons that you wanted to protect them, like I know there's there's a hot trend of using bunny poop as fertilizer. Is that why you've come here? Are you trying to mine the earth of bunny poop? No, we have no use for bunny poop. Um, we don't use traditional fertilizers. We don't actually use plants at all in our uh, ecosystems. So we have no use for bunny poop. That is just a, I guess, a, a bonus. Um, if you are just, I'm, I'm assuming you have a home, a place of residence back in your planet. If you walk outside the door, what does it look like? It looks probably very boring by comparison to what you're used to here on Earth. Um, our planet is not as diverse in terms of different kinds of environments. Um, so you're very fortunate here on Earth to have lots of different environments within your biosphere. Uh, ours kind of looks like a desert at this point. We don't have any plants, at least not at the surface. Um, so it probably look like a pretty boring desert to most humans. And I can only imagine that some of maybe the possibly sand granules, they're not, they're not organized at all. Uh, they're kind of just random piles here and there, which sounds right up your alley. Yeah, we, we mess. We love to go with chaos. We do not try to fight against it. We have found that that is a, a quick way to um, become demoralized and to run civilizations into the ground is to care too much about how things look. So we just go with it and we embrace the mess. In fact, we spread the mess where we can. Yeah. Uh, I had nice uh, bottles of water out here for us and you slammed them on the ground. Um, I had one mic attached to your, your shell, which you just ate. Um, so not, I'll be honest, not very happy about it, but it seems uh, to merit with your species. Yes. It's a sign of respect for us. Okay, I think with that, that's great. Um, yeah, oh my how God. was that to meet your first alien? That was really fun. I was pulling from so many different places for <laughs> inspiration. Well, Lana, it has been a blast to hear about your story. I'm glad we got to meet, um, and hopefully, we keep it up. And you know, if you ever need a random alien to pop by for your videos, the lab. Um, any of your consulting work, if you, if you want to throw a couple hundred bucks my way to, uh, as, as an actual alien, uh, have my feedback on some papers, you let me know. Amazing. Yeah. I may need to be casting aliens soon for, for some upcoming projects. So I will keep you in mind. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I hope you engage your family and friends in a big existential conversation about life around the table during Thanksgiving. What is life? Grammy, don't hurt me.
don't hurt me no more. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell your friends and family. They will be a traveling and might as well get an emotional boost after dealing with family for a few days. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, marketing by Jevin Lorty, and website and editing by Julian Nepper. Oh my gosh, I'm playing on his name. Sterver, Steve Irwin. Sterver. 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 Steve Irwin.